Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Why is it that whenever we're going to have conversations about the NHL being a gong show or dirty hits or the code, it's just you and I and Brad's not here? Or there's only two of us in general. It's uh, it's a recurring theme. Every time we know we're going to be shorthanded, <laughs> the league kind of turns into a gong show. Yeah, I wonder if that's just to protect against, you know, a a reasonable third opinion, and then we just kind of let the the horses run the hospitals, so to speak. Yeah, if this podcast is already an echo chamber, when it goes down to two, it's probably much <laughs> much worse. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Thank you, Nick Cousins, for providing us additional content for the two-man podcast today. That easily on his way to the most hated man in the NHL. Oh, easily. He's If there was a depth chart, he's moved his, himself way up at this past, uh, I'd say, month or so. Well, good content, like you said. And uh, nice to have something so divisive to talk about. The Sportsnet panel kicked off that whole conversation in the hockey sphere, but in a, a time where Detroit's played only one game since last episode, and it was a late-night game as they're on their West Coast road trip, we're going to have a lot to talk about still. Folks, welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and the world juniors, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. And I'm Evan. Brad Crisco is away for this episode, but we are going to be filling in that spot with someone a lot more knowledgeable. We have an interview with Tony Ferrari on this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast. So we're going to talk to Tony about the World Juniors, Red Wings prospects, including Axel Sandin Pelica, who is taking the hockey world by storm, Nate Danielson, Trey Augustine, and lots more. We're also going to be discussing Detroit's previous game against the San Jose Sharks, which was technically a win. I'll say staying up late to watch that one. I said, yep, that's technically two points. We'll be discussing that game as well as Detroit's upcoming games. We are going to be talking about some news regarding Red Wings prospects and what could happen in their junior leagues, as well as taking a look at Detroit's, uh, the strength of their schedule coming up. We'll jump into that conversation with Tony and then give another World Juniors update after that. And then we are going to be talking about the physical nature of the NHL that's been at the top of conversations uh, of late. Hartman's high stick on Perfetti, which was done and retribution for the cross-check on Kaprizov. We're going to be talking about the Zucker hit on Cousins and the suspension that came afterwards, and then whatever else we get into before overtime. Before all that, I want to let you know, Winged Wheel Podcast Net at the LCA, the next version of our partnered event with the Detroit Red Wings, is happening on Saturday, March 2nd. That is a game against the Florida Panthers. Again, that's Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA in partnership with the Detroit Red Wings. It's an event where we go to the LCA and record a pre-game live episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast featuring special guests. They've always featured Ken Daniels. We've had Mickey Redmond and Chris Osgood on in the past, where you can come uh, meet and greet with the hosts of the Winged Wheel Podcast, grab some merch. There's always a piece of merchandise that's a special edition. This one is going to be another different custom Detroit Red Wings and Winged Wheel Podcast co-branded hat. We'll release what that looks like soon. You get access to the event. You obviously get your ticket to the game. You get the hat and then a chance to kind of meet and greet with the special guests, less importantly, the hosts. There's going to be food and drinks available and lots of different giveaways for you to grab. In addition to all that, a portion of the proceeds from every ticket sold benefits the Jamie Daniels Foundation, which is uh, an amazing cause. So thank you to the Detroit Red Wings for working with us on that one. 
Again, that's Winged Wheel Podcasting at the LCA Saturday, March 2nd. Go to the link in the description. I'm hoping by the time you listen to this episode, that link is live. If not, check back soon. Tickets do go fast, so get yours quickly. Also, very quickly, if you want to support the show and our ability to run Winged Wheel Podcast Nights, both at the LCA and with the Grand Rapids Griffins, uh, patreon.com slash Podcast is how you go above and beyond to support the show. It allows us to host those special events, support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, continue to grow the show and, and do cool things and uh, lots more. You get a lot of great benefits, access to our Winged Wheel Podcast exclusive Discord, access to all of our bonus content, including our bonus overtime episodes, which record right after these main ones, and you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. Uh, we give away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game, the vast majority of those going directly to our Patreon supporters. So again, patreon.com slash Winged Wheel Podcast. All right. The Red Wings played San Jose on Tuesday night, 1030 Eastern. My New Year's resolution to sleep better was off to a poor start, but hey, we we do what we have to do. And I'll tell you, staying up to watch that game, watching it unfold, I, I saw the first period and yeah, they came out of that first period tied and Detroit did score first, but overall I didn't really think that Detroit they 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 let San Jose control play. I don't know if the Red Wings have an issue with the San Jose Sharks in terms of demons they need to exercise. I don't know if the the blown lead game. You say demons or D-men because either one. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I said both of those at the same time. Because they make the San Jose Sharks look like an all-star playoff caliber team at times. They really do. Someone said they played down and up to other teams' levels. I don't think that's necessarily true of late. But they absolutely play down to San Jose. And if you think of, you know, Ottawa's having a terrible season. Well, they seem to have Detroit's number this year. You're right. It, they, they're having a hard time dominating when they should dominate. Even when Detroit's having a terrible streak like they have been, San Jose's the worst team in the NHL. It is not unreasonable to say you come into this game and you should be able to do what you need to do. Now, they did travel, and so I understand that. And so I thought, okay, first period's forgivable, but... Really, the rest of the game, I was watching that, and I was like, this isn't good. Like, Detroit's not playing good hockey right now. We are now in the territory of they have to eke out a win or try to find a result in a game that's going to go down, if you look at it play-by-play, play, not really in their favor. I, I don't think that was necessarily a good enough performance against San Jose. And I won't say Alex Lyon was particularly amazing. He made this most of the saves when he needed to. Somehow San Jose gets top quality opportunities against the Red Wings again. And he made some big saves like the Hoffman one-handed Forsberg move on a breakaway after Olimata did the old swing and miss on a (laughs) bouncing puck and then got walked. That pretty much should have went in, but Alex Lyons stopped it with the blade of his skate. Didn't really like the Barabanov goal on Lyon, kind of out of position, but there was a ton of traffic and battling in front. So, yeah, I won't say, you know, Alex Lyon stole the game by any means, but he made some big saves when he needed to, which kept the Red Wings alive. Like, it was tied with 10 minutes left in the third, and San Jose, I think, took the lead. Yeah, San Jose was up with, yeah, with 10 minutes left. And at that point, I said Detroit has to pretty much ignore the first 50 minutes and find a way to, to make this work. And lo and behold, they did. So the scoring actually opened in the game as Daniel Sprong scored on the power play. It was from Raymond and Goss Spare. Sprong 
per uh, reference, is now on pace again for another 20-plus goal season. He's playing more than he did last season, but still just about 13 minutes a night, so continues to be an efficient scorer. Uh, JT Confer scored once in the second period to actually give Detroit the lead, 2-1. to one. And then, yet yeah, the, the Red Wings conceded two goals, and they were down 3-2 with 10 minutes left, but David Perron came in clutch on the power play from Sprong and Raymond. Great look by Sprong across the ice. And then Perron again, not too long before the end of the game, I think it was like 90 seconds left, essentially threw the puck in front. Dylan Larkin was crashing the net. We thought for a little while that it had gone off Larkin. The celebration looked like it, but it actually just went off the Sharks player. Perron got that goal too, and then Michael Rasmussen with an individual effort at the end of the game to score empty netted. So that was a 5-3 result where 10 minutes prior is 3-2 San Jose. So it turned out well for Detroit, but <laughs> it was by the skin of their teeth. Yeah, I mean, the positive there is the Red Wings were able to dig in and erase the deficit and win in regulation. I mean, it took 50 minutes to to finally figure it out. But we've seen time and time again the Red Wings come down and sort of fall apart in recent memory before they were the comeback kids where, you know, they'd be down 3 nothing in the first period and come back and win the game. So they've moved away from that MO and have been falling apart thanks to December, but it's good to see they at least are able to salvage this and win in regulation. I'll say, like, at that point, I just wanted them to get the two points. It wasn't going to yeah. be a good game when you look back at it, no matter what. Uh, they had to rely on, you know, goals that really shouldn't have squeaked through. Like, you look at Confer's goal, should that have gone in? Probably no, probably not. not. But then again, like, you have to take those. You have to essentially, if you're going to have a December like Detroit just had, where they lost games... Not that they shouldn't have lost because they were playing poor enough where they should have lost those games. But if you're going to lose that many times in a month and kind of take away a lot of the good progress you did, you have to find a way to squeak out points for games where you didn't necessarily deserve it. That's how you kind of claw your way back into the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I still have massive issues with the how soft the home plate area is for the Red Wings. I have massive issues with uh, switching of coverage between each defender or a defender and a centerman like that is a very much a work in progress and even the bad teams like san jose are exploiting that right now it's those things are painful to watch but when you are in the heat of a playoff race and the wild card race two points is two points right now so it doesn't matter how you get them yeah detroit can't be in the conversation come march april if they're not undoing a lot of bad right now in january exactly and then you watch plays where there's a scramble in front. You talk about being soft in the home plate area and in, right in front of Detroit's own net, there's that puck that was kind of floating around and <laughs> Lion kind of whiffed on it, Cop kind of whiffed on this. By Essentially, the puck went in Detroit's own net where they could have, Lion could have froze it. And it was a combination. People piled on Cop, and I do think he was part of the problem on that play, but I think Lion whiffed too. And you watch, the whole thing is you watch plays like that and you're like, guys, you need to just buckle down right now, like get down to the basics, get down to the fundamentals. I do think there's times, you know, Dylan Larkin has said uh, in interviews, I think they're kind of overcomplicating things for themselves because they're so afraid of mistakes and you can just see it. Like they're gripping the sticks too tight, just losing coverage, getting scrambled and it's everyone. Oh yeah. And that's how it was. I, you're exactly right. Like, just find the high danger areas that you're giving away right now and focus on those. Like just buckle down on what you need to to 
buckle down on for the time being and then build your game out from there. Because it seems like this team has completely, at points in that San Jose game, like they were as scrambled as they were in the middle of December when things were going terrible. But they did work it out. They did get a few lucky breaks. And sometimes that's what you need to do to change fortunes. So Detroit got the two points. Line got the win. Raymond had three assists in that game, which was awesome. Yep. Sprong had a goal and assist. Perron had two clutch goals. So was it pretty? No, God, no. That's one of the uglier wins of this season, if not the ugliest against the league worst shark. But they didn't lose to them. And that's that's it. <laughs> that's, that's an improvement. At this point, after the December we just witnessed, you got to take them as they come at this point because, uh, yeah, points are only going to get more, become more difficult to get upcoming. Oh, yeah. So the next game, and we're recording before this game happens, it's about lunchtime on Thursday right now, is 10.30 p.m. Eastern on Thursday against L.A. And that's a team that's been faltering lately, but still a strong team. And then after that, you have the Ducks, and that's a, a team you probably should be able to take points from. But this is their January schedule. After L.A. and the Ducks, they have three days off. Then they have Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers, who are playing like they have to, but playing like their lives depend on it. Essentially, their playoff lives do. Then they have LA again, and then they have Toronto, and then they have Florida, and then they have Carolina, and then they have Tampa Bay, then Dallas, then Philly, then Vegas, then Ottawa. Those are all either powerhouse teams, playoff teams who are maybe not playing right now at their best level, but are still playoff caliber teams, or the Ottawa Senators who have their number. Those are going to be, and they have five straight home games in January. Those are going to be like, they're going to be tough games to take points from, and they're going to need to make sure they're entering the all-star break, having surprised people if they want to be in the conversation after the all-star break. So I guess one saving grace here is the home games. The Red Wings have been much, much better at home than they have been on the road. They can get the matchups they want. The fans can get behind them, provide some energy. So that is at least a positive to that schedule. The problem is all those teams are essentially playoff bound or playoff hopefuls and the Red Wings have to make up ground on some of these teams, i.e. Philly, Carolina, who's now in a divisional spot. All of these games are super important. So I don't know what expect, you know, you you want the Red Wings to win every game that they can, that they can. Like expectations are always to win. When as a realist, you know, do you hope the team goes 500 in the month of January, but beats Ottawa and Philly and Carolina, any team in in the Eastern Conference? That would be my passing grade. But man, these games are not going to be easy. If they walk away from January with a greater than 500 points percentage, I will genuinely be surprised and pleased. That's not good enough to get them back into the playoff race outright. But no, but you can't. Go less than that this month when you're already trying to make up ground yeah, and still remain playoff hopeful. Because if you do go less than 500 this month, for me, the question, the elephant in the room gets larger and it's, is this team buying or selling at the, at, at the, at yeah. the trade deadline? Yeah. There's big conversations and it has implications for the players too. Like, what do Kane and Goss Despair want to do? Let alone what you can get them signed for if you want to extend them. What do they want to do? Yeah. We've talked about that in previous episodes, but it, it's going to be a big question. So, big January for Detroit coming up. Yep. There's uh, no free games at this no, point. Absolutely no free games. 
Okay, that's the Red Wings and their schedule. We will be back with you on Sunday after they have played the LA game, but before they played the Anaheim game. January is a little bit of a weird month. The The Sunday evening games are three weeks in a row here with the 7th, the 14th, and the 21st. So our schedule will vary in terms of what games we can and can't cover on those episodes. But of course, we'll keep you posted with that one. Other Red Wings news. Uh, now that Nate Danielson's World Junior Tournament is over, all eyes are on you know the Canadian Major Junior Leagues to see what they are going to do uh, as trades galore start to happen. Pretty soon here, and eyes are on Nate Danielson in the WHL to see if he's one of the players moved. So that could have implications for him. He could be moved to a powerhouse team that's really looking to load up. We'll see what happens. No guarantees, but eyes on Nate Danielson to see if uh, another team wants to acquire him and he can move to a team with even more firepower than than Brandon, who's not having a bad year, but still, we'll we'll see what happens there. Yeah, you gotta love the uh, the CHL level of trades where they'll just trade six first round uh, picks for X, Y, and Z players just yeah. to absolutely go for it and try and make the Memorial Cup. It'll be really interesting to see. Um, I know 32 Thoughts mentioned Danielson and Portland made a lot of sense. I will not uh, pretend to be an expert in the WHL. Portland has a better points percentage than Brandon, so maybe that does make sense, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see where where uh, Nate Danielson lands. Not having the best productive season, but no. then again, maybe the change of scenery out of Brandon would be productive on that front. So we'll see. Well, more on Nate Danielson in just a second here because we're actually going to jump into our interview with Tony Ferrari. Tony does uh, excellent work covering prospects across the hockey world, a good friend of the podcast. Uh, you can find his work on the Hockey News and lots of other places. Tony uh, is going to give us insights here on the World Junior Championships, Detroit's prospects there and beyond. So without further ado, our interview with Tony Ferrari. Tony, Happy New Year. What better way to kick off a new year for the Wayne Grill podcast than to have our favorite draft commentator back? Welcome back to the show. How have you been, man? I've been good. Aside from getting over the sickness, it's uh, it's been good. The World Junior Tournament has was a slow burn, but that quarterfinal day was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we were laughing about that beforehand, saying like the the World Juniors, it's not that it didn't really do it for us this year, it's just it seemed to be a lot of, I don't know, a lot of like middling storylines, things like that, not a lot of uh, things jumping out at you, and then that quarterfinal day just burned everything to the ground, which is fun, watching as a as a fan. Yeah, and it, uh, it, it gave me a little bit of, of uh, a bittersweet pride as someone who Predicted Canada to have a not very good tournament, and everyone yelled at me before the tournament, and then they didn't have a good tournament, and I went, sometimes that happens. <laughs> That's the Canadian way. When things don't go your way, they <laughs> a lot of Canadians just yell after they, they fail at the World Juniors. It's so funny because you grow up and it's like, oh, Canada's on a four-tournament win streak, five-tournament win streak, six, and then uh, that era's over. As I think which is good for, for the tournament and for hockey, the rest of the world has really caught up. I remember seeing the pre-tournament rosters and I thought, not only does Canada not stack up against that well against the other top teams, I would put them a distant third at the very least behind Sweden and the States in terms of those rosters. And that seems to be how it's played out so far. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting tournament because you looked at it and you went, is this Canada kind of falling on their face or is this everyone catching up? And I mean, this is a tournament without Russia for good reason, but Czechia, Sw- uh, Slovakia, even Switzerland, they're coming and they're being competitive. And 
Now this is the second year in a row. Czechia is going to be at the in the semifinals, going to be competing for a medal. Slovakia, for two years in a row, has just lost a heartbreaker in the quarterfinals to not make it there. And, and they've been one of the most exciting teams. We saw so many Slovaks go go in the draft the last couple of years. And, I mean, whether or not you like uh, – you think he's developing well or not. Jura Slavkovsky was the first overall pick. The Slovaks are coming, and they're they're going to be good for a little while, I think. So let's recap the tournament as to where it is at the time of recording right now. So the quarterfinals just happened. Uh, Sweden beat Switzerland 3-2 in a kind of controversial OT win. I think there was that one of the worst calls I've I've seen called in an elimination game at the end one? of regulation. The, the one at the end of regulation, that was brutal. And then there's the, I mean, the, the Swiss team wasn't happy about the OT penalty call either, where uh, eventually Sandine Pelica scored the game winner to move Sweden on to the semifinals. Uh, Canada fell to Czechia 3-2 with, uh, I think, 11 seconds left. That goal went in for Czechia. And that was a shocking goal for Canada to let in. But also, if you watched the game, it wasn't really... The result wasn't a terribly surprising one. USA had the probably the only predictable result of the day with the 7-2 win over Latvia. And then, like you mentioned, uh, the Finns won 4-3 in overtime against Slovakia. And, and you picked two teams who maybe deserve to make it out of one quarterfinal matchup. I think you're right. I think it's those two. Yeah, it was a it was a fun day because you go into the tournament and you look at Canada and you look at Finland and you're like neither neither quite looks as strong as they they have in the last few years. Um, Canada obviously going down to Czechia in the rematch of last year's gold medal game, uh, heartbreaking fashion. Eleven seconds to go, goes off Oliver Bunk's stick um, on a fluky goal, and then with Slovakia losing to Finland in overtime, I think it was 24 seconds into that one. It, it just felt like, man, like those were two teams that, that could have easily gone on, gone further. But Finland came on late in the tournament. They beat Sweden in the final round robin game. So you could you could feel them coming along. You could feel them becoming the typical structured Finns that we've come and known to love and loathe over the last decade or so. And and then, yeah, that Czech team, they're every year they come in, they're stronger than they, than they look, especially the last couple. And they're going to be competing for a medal again this year. So let's talk about the Switzerland-Sweden game. Before we talk about the player of interest here, uh, what do you make of that, the, the penalty calls? Because Switzerland looked like they could have pulled off the upset, and I know that's driving a lot of the anger. When I was watching, I'm like, this feels like you robbed, the rest robbed us of a storyline. But what do you make of those calls? Yeah, it, it definitely felt like the rest robbed us of a storyline. But with that said, I think in the last 10 minutes, there could have been five or 10 minutes, there could have been 10, 15 calls made based on some of the things that the Swiss were doing just to tie guys up and, and trip guys and throw guys to the ice. And they were playing to the limits of the whistle. And then for whatever reason, the referee decided a very, very light poke was worth the spearing penalty or initially given a major, which I thought was absolutely wild. Um, it let them review it. They downgraded to a minor. Probably should have been nothing, but gave Sweden the power play at the end of the game, going in overtime. They didn't get it. They didn't score there. They go into overtime. Another fortunate power play um, on a, a, a bit of a weird tripping call or hooking call. This, this The Swiss were robbed, but at the same time, I think you look at this tournament as a whole, and the Swedes were the better team. Uh, it would have been cool to see the magic of the Swiss going on, but then how, how much would you want to see the U.S. just beat up on three other teams that probably aren't on their level? So the winner was scored by Axel Sandin Pelica, one of Detroit's two first-round picks from this previous draft. Sandin Pelica's had 
he's had an interesting tournament. I wouldn't say he's been completely lights out, but it was a pretty electric moment and one that kind of put him on the map for a lot of people. As uh, He's been getting a lot of praise from coaches and opponents, but to the general hockey fan base, they've seen Sandine Pellick as a, a factor coming into this league, hopefully soon. Yeah, he's he's been unreal for Schleftia in, in the over in Sweden. He's been fantastic, scoring goals, putting up points, looking like one of the best defenders outside of the NHL right now, at least offensively. And you're seeing him clean up some of his defensive flaws. I think we we always go, how much can these offensive guys handle defensively? And we're starting to see him show that he can at least come up to that league average, maybe slightly above league average with the skating that he has. And, and he still has an offensive game. He hasn't quite shown it in this tournament, but when push came to shove in overtime, he was the guy scoring the game-winning goal on a team that's loaded up front. And, I mean, even on the back end, they've got a ton of guys back there that could have been in that position. But he's the lead dog, and he showed why. There's a comparison that Brad loves to do in the show to uh, Eric Carlson with Axel Sandin Pelica. And when you talk about his offensive game, and you're saying that it's not necessarily on display this tournament, people might be thinking, well, he just scored a, an elimination game OT winner. What do you mean? And it's that Sandin Pelica truly does have a lot of like really good foundation to be compared to some of the traits of Eric Carlson or a lot of the traits of, of Chris Letang. What do you see as his potential future in the NHL? I think both of those two guys are Hall of Famers, and it's always hard to compare anybody to a Hall of Famer. But with that said, he's got the shades. I think I think you see see the skill, you see the offensive ability. He's got 13 points, nine goals, and 25 games in the SHL this year. Absolutely fantastic. This kid can skate. He moves so well, so fluidly. Uh, fakes guys out with fake shots, little head fakes, shoulder shimmies. He, he does so much to manipulate time and space in the offensive zone and in transition that you you almost have to go, is he going to be that next high-end offensive defenseman coming into the SHL or into the NHL from Sweden. Is he going to be Eric Carlson? Is he going to be Chris Letang? Maybe he's neither of those guys, but he at least has people talking about him being in that conversation and being that kind of player. I don't think I know there are people beforehand, and I mean, Detroit fans will know this well. People were going, well, maybe he's Shane Goss to spare. Shane Goss looks pretty good in Detroit this year, and I, I think... Sandy and Pelica, if that's the absolute floor, you're kind of okay considering the ceiling is so high. Elsewhere in Sweden, on the blue line as well, Antonio Johansson, who doesn't get as much fanfare, doesn't have the same kind of game as Sandy and Pelica, but notable that he made this team and maybe one of the lesser-known Red Wings prospects, but one that's still getting ice time with Sweden. How has his tournament been so far? No production uh, offensively, but what have you seen from his game? He's been quiet in this tournament. I think I expected a little bit more offensively from him. I expected him to be moving the pucks. But at the same time, with the the lineup that that Swedish team has, you're, I'm not shocked that he hasn't gotten the opportunities. I mean, Theo Lindstein came into this tournament late as an as a injury replacement, and he's absolutely torn it up. He's one of the leading scorers on the back end. I, I think Axel Sandin Pelica takes the, kind of that offensive role. Obviously, uh, Matthias Havlid, the Sharks prospect, takes that role. So, so Johansson doesn't get that chance. And I, I think that's kind of where you see him being a little bit more quiet. But he hasn't made a bunch of glaring mistakes either. So I think that's a good thing. All right, let's jump over to, let's just get into who I think is Detroit's most electric prospect in this tournament. And one who didn't even play in the quarterfinals. And that's Trey Augustine. He's obviously been battling the flu. It looks like the States made a decision to, you would think it would be that they were just giving him the rest 
Uh, and so they didn't play him in that quarterfinal win over Latvia. Latvia, you have to always respect your opponent. Canadian fans know full well what Latvia can do to you in net, but they were pretty confident going in with both of their goaltenders. But Trey Augustine, otherwise, I mean, he's top two in this tournament in save percentage and goals against average, only behind uh, Sweden's Havlid. So uh, is this like a coming out party for Trey Augustine in your mind? I, I thought last year was kind of a coming out party for this kid. This, he came into the tournament, wasn't supposed to play, and ended up playing a lot for that U.S. team last year. This year, absolutely dominant when he's been in net. Like I said, the sickness has kind of impacted his game. And there's been a lot of players sick at this year's tournament, but this kid is the starter. I think everyone kind of goes in this tournament and they're like, who's going to be the starter for the, this U.S. team? Jacob Fowler is such a highly talented guy. And he's played well when he's been in net, but the level that Trey Augustine's on right now, he's got a 9.52 save percentage through two games. If he was available for the quarterfinals, he's probably the guy. Like you said, probably rest considering he played the game before. But yeah, he, he's the guy going in the semifinals. And if you have the chance to rest him up, I thought they had the easiest draw of any team, of anybody in that quarterfinal round. Let Jacob Fowler get another game in. He's been a good soldier playing that quarterfinal game. Then you let Trey Augustine go back to back in the semifinals and, and probably the gold medal game. What do you make of how Trey Augustine has performed? You know, a second round pick for Detroit. But all of Detroit fans, their eyes are on Sebastian Kosa as like their next goalie. Uh, I don't, I didn't see a lot of complaints when Augustine was drafted. But what do you see of the uh, the whole conversation of who's the number one goalie in Detroit's prospect pipeline? It's interesting because there was so much hype around Sebastian Kosa, and he's improved a lot over the last couple of years and through the ECHL and now the AHL. But I think Trey Augustine just has been that more consistent player. And I think anytime you get a goalie going through that NCAA route, it's a nice kind of. You're able to kind of put him on the back burner. You don't need to rush to sign him because he's in the NCAA. And then he can kind of come in at 22 or 23, and then he can get into the HL and get seasoned. So it's almost like they have these guys staggered, and, and they drafted him a couple years apart. Sebastian Kosa, I think everyone still wants to be the guy. You put a lot of investment and trade up to get him. Uh, passed on a certain Swede to, to take him, and you still have a lot of hope there. He's got boatloads of potential. Huge goalie, plays really well, has been really good in the AHL this year. Trey Augustine is going to do everything in his power to push him, though. So I think it's a good problem to have, but it's certainly a 1A, 1B, in my opinion, at this point. All right, let's jump over to maybe a a result that surprised some people, which is Canada's regulation loss to Czechia 3-2, and that spelled the end of the tournament for the other Red Wings first-round draft pick from this past season, Nate Danielson, who I thought had a good tournament overall. He was a a bright spot in an otherwise underperforming uh, Canadian roster. What did you make of Nate Danielson's tournament and the, the type of prospect he is for Detroit? It was a good, not great tournament for him, which can't be said, unfortunately, for a lot of Canadians. I think when you saw Nate Danielson on this roster, you said, okay, this is a bottom six guy. He'll play a pretty steady game. And and that's what he did. He didn't do anything outside of the box. He didn't do anything crazy. Uh, There was a couple of shifts, especially in that quarterfinal game, where he really was driving some really nice offensive play, kind of hemming the the check team in their zone, creating battles off the wall, winning the puck and getting it to the middle creating havoc around the net, doing a lot of things that we've kind of come to know as Danielson can do. With that said, I think the lack of dynamism in his game kind of limited his offensive ability at this tournament. And unfortunately, when you're a guy that's drafted in the top 10 like that, you want to see some more offensive ability. You want to see him really pop off at a turn like this. Now, I think the 
the kind of role he was in at, in at the World Juniors this year shows exactly what he can be at the, at the NHL level. He can be a very good player, uh, a really solid contributor in the middle sticks. He'll do a lot of things really well for you. But is he going to be the difference maker? Not Probably not. And I think that's what he's shown this year in Brandon. Um, the rumors are that he's probably going to be traded out of Brandon. So it'll be nice to see him in a, a an environment more conducive to offense because you wanted to see him take a step offensively this year with Brandon. He didn't quite do that. He's actually scoring at a slightly lower rate this year, despite the fact that Brandon is a bit of a better team. Around In Team Canada, you were hoping with more talent around him, he would be able to kind of generate some more offense. He didn't quite do that in that short tournament there, but it, that's a small, small sample size. So now it's like, what, what do we see coming up next? Because like I said, there's not many players you can look at and go, they had a good, not great tournament for Canada. And Nate Danielson's one of them. So there's at least that. The other Canadian prospect that a lot of people have their eyes on, and it's probably foolish for Red Wings fans to get their hopes up on him. It's this year's presumptive first overall draft pick, uh, Macklin Celebrini. Not necessarily Connor Bedard levels in my eyes, but still a standout player. Uh, we were laughing beforehand, which is uh, about the the Canadian team, which is that they tr- always try to rely on you know the Connor Bedard type. But as good as Macklin Celebrini was, he couldn't be the single one to to fix that team as well. But still, he kind of shone in a way that proved. To a lot of people, I think, why he's that first overall draft pick. So who's Macklin Celebrini? What kind of game does he play? And, and what do you make of him? He's a really smart player, really cerebral guy. I think he has the offensive ability to be a difference maker at this level, whether he's 17 or 18 or 19 over the next couple of years, if he gets a chance to go again, which probably won't based on the fact that he'll most likely be in the NHL. But he's been tearing up the NCAA. This is a kid that deserves to go first overall. And I look at him on this team for for Canada and I go, what if Adam Fantilli was put in this position last year? Um, and I think you probably end up with the similar results. Fantilli didn't quite produce as much, but for the most of the tournament, he played in the bottom six and still made his impact felt. So I think if he was on a team like the one compo- composed this year where they said, hey, we need you to be a, a bigger fixture. We need you to be a, a guy that's uh, generating offense, really creating for this team then he probably would have done it. So I think that's where the comparison is. I think you you compare him a little bit to Adam Fantilli, at least in terms of uh, upside. I think Celebrini is a bit more of a skilled guy, not as much of a physical guy. Um, I think Fantilli has a bit more of a, a two-way game, but Celebrini has some dynamism to his game. He's got some creativity. And, and the one thing I'll say about Celebrini's game that I, I thought really allowed him to excel at this tournament was this is the kid that plays with gravity. Every time he has the puck, Everyone's eyes are going on him. Everyone's feet angle towards him. Every The goaltender, the defenseman, the forwards coming back on the back check. Everyone's kind of gravitating towards him, which opens up guys like Braden Yeager or Matthew Wood or whoever was on his line on a given night. And it allowed him to be a really high-end playmaker at this tournament and still be able to create some goals for himself. He's a, really, a guy that will kind of lurk in the shadows and jump on a loose puck. Uh, we saw him score a goal like that. Um, we saw him get a bunch of scoring chances like that. This is a kid that has some really high-end talent, deserves to go first overall. And although this draft isn't the Conor Bedard draft, whoever ends up getting celebrating is still going to get a very, very good player. All right. Well, uh, as we're recording, I believe this interview will go out after the semifinal games will be played. So I'm not going to tank you by making you make predictions that are immediately. Well, by the time people hear them, it'll seem foolish. So let's jump over to the NHL side of things uh, and Red Wings prospects. Uh, you had mentioned off-air about Simon Edmondson. Uh, what do you make of the situation where he seems to be presumably ready, but still in Grand Rapids, not in Detroit full-time? I, I think 
he's in the spot where he's forcing Steve Eiserman's hand, forcing the Red Wings hand. They they brought in a lot of veterans, a lot of guys that can play on those bottom two pairs. And they went, if Simon Edmondson doesn't force his way on to this team, he's not going to play on this team. He's kind of forcing his way onto this team at this point. I, I don't think anyone was expecting it to be as early as it has, especially with the offseason surgery. This kid's been fantastic for the Grand Rapids Griffins. He's looked good in the couple NHL experiences that he's had. Um, I know there's been a couple of defensive mistakes, but this this kid's ready to play in the NHL. I, I don't see any reason why you don't have him in the NHL because he's got the offensive ability. He's got the size. He's got the skating. He can be a guy that... I mean, you're putting Justin Hall out there. You're putting uh, Ben Sherratt and Jeff Petrie, who have had some ups and downs and, and a better season this year. But you got a guy that can play some really high-impact minutes, especially on a team that's sputtering a little bit. I mean, we just talked about before we started recording. Uh, the Red Wings win over San Jose last night, which was a win, but it wasn't a convincing one. Legally, and, yes, it was a win. And as much as those two points count, you, you can get a guy into the lineup that might be able to spark some stuff from the back end, um, give a little bit more from that back end that's really kind of striving to get something from guys beyond Sider and Wallman. There's a larger conversation happening, and it's probably a dramatic one because these conversations are only happening when Detroit's you know doing poorly, which they have been for a month or so now. Uh, but the larger kind of discourse is about what the Red Wings have in the system prospect-wise and how that's going. You know, I'm not going to needle you on specific players, but when you think about the Red Wings prospect system and where they are at right now, if you're a Red Wings fan, are you inspired by that? How do you kind of, what, what are the vibes you're getting from them in terms of where the Red Wings need to be and what they have waiting in the ranks? I think the Red Wings are still in a good spot. I think they've got a lot of good good prospects. They've got guys that can really make a difference as they get to the NHL over the next few years. I mean, a guy like Amadeus Lombardi is still a good prospect. Marco Casper, um, we talked about Nate Danielson. They, they've got players down the middle. They, they've got guys that can play on the wing. I, I mean, what is Dmitry Pachelnikov going to be? Honestly, I still have no idea about this kid because I watch him and I go, boy, he's fun. Is he going to be good in the NHL? And you got a bunch of guys in the system like that. Can this team figure out some offensive punch? I, th- I think we've talked about it before. We'll probably talk about it a million times until the day comes. D- do they have that guy that can be the guy in, in the NHL? I- you look at Dylan Larkin. You look at uh, Lucas Raymond, some of the guys that are coming. And you go, they're all very, very good players. I think Dylan Larkin's an excellent number one center. I think people have been crapping on him far too long about it. Uh, he's fully convinced me at this point. But... Is he in that net, that upper echelon of superstars that can get you to the Stanley Cup final and be the guy in the Stanley Cup final team? I, I still don't know about that because the supporting cast around him hasn't quite been what you'd want to see, despite the fact that they have seemingly three third lines behind that top line. Um, they really don't have a bunch of guys struggling. So I, I think you have some really good offensive players. You have some really good players in the back end. Um, I, I didn't even talk about guys like Sandy Pelica. Um, William Willinder, Simon Edmondson, we talked about. There's guys coming. It's just, is there going to be a guy to really assert himself at the top of that lineup and, and be that difference maker on a long Stanley Cup run? You know the, the solution to all of this, and it's not even Macklin Celebrini, right? It's Cole Eiserman. No, no, no. It's signing William Nylander in the offseason <laughs> for like $13 million or whatever it's going to be. I am at the point now where I'm like, you're <laughs> never going to win a draft lottery. You're never going to get the star 
that you need to. Seemingly, Detroit can't do the whole uh, get a Braden Point in the second round, so just go overpay for someone. I'd rather be overpaying for William Nylander than you know a middle six forward at this point. And I, and I guarantee you, Detroit will be so much nicer to him than Toronto is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a Canadian market not being nice to their stars, which is a shame. I always say from a biased perspective, it's a shame that Vancouver is doing well, because this would have been a great time to chase Elias Pettersson out of town. Oh, it still might be. Honestly, go for it. Chase him. Go get him. You know, tired, chase Elias Pettersson out of town. Wired, chase Connor McDavid out of town. Then you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on how that season goes, it might be easier said than done. <laughs> All right. Well, this is getting off the rails, which is probably a good time to let you go. Uh, Tony, please tell us where uh, we can find your incredible work that uh, we all follow here on the Winged Wheel podcast so closely. Uh, easiest way to find it all is just follow me on Twitter, X, or whatever it's being called nowadays at the Tony Ferrari. I post everything there. A lot of my work's at the Hockey News right now, and we'll see where that goes. All right, folks, this has been Tony Ferrari, the Tony Ferrari on Twitter or X. If you're listening, Elon, thank you, Tony, so much. And we'll uh, connect with you soon. It's getting into prospect season pretty soon here. Uh, Hopefully not too much of the draft for you guys, though. (laughs) And that was our interview with Tony Ferrari. Thank you again to Tony. Always good to, to get a grasp of what the Red Wings prospects are like. Good positive outlook and... Honestly, it's really cool to see Axel, Sandy, and Pelica take the hockey world by storm. You know, Tony talked about him a little bit there. Since that conversation with Tony, Sweden has since beat Czechia 5-2 in the semifinals where Axel, Sandy, and Pelica scored again. It was an initial go-ahead goal, and he actually assisted the game-winning goal by Lekaramaki. So another two points for Sandy and Pelica there. So even if it wasn't the most productive round robin, he's really heating up here, and people are taking notice. You see him... Chicklets is talking about him. Like the hockey world is now noticing the the absolute steal Detroit seems to have maybe gotten in Axel Sandin Pelica. Yeah, it's been has been a flashy tournament for Sandin Pelica, but it's def, the the production is ramping up, and just the way he conducts himself on the ice and the way he moves and the way he he processes the game, well, it's catching a lot of people's attention now, and it's it's. Always feels good when it happens when it's a Red Wings prospect. You can see why we were, I think all three of us were really excited when they nabbed him at 16. And it wasn't a knock on Danielson, but we thought if you walk away from the first round, and we've said this before, if you walk away from the first round and said you got Sandine Pelican and Danielson, you'd be thrilled. And you would have assumed Sandine Pelican would have been the first of the two to go. Yes, it's amazing what happens when you take a player who has extremely high upside. Which is what the Red Wings need to be doing right now, so... He fits that bill for Detroit, and cool to see him him kind of live up to that so far. The other semifinal game is has not happened yet at the time of recording. By the time you listen, you'll probably know the result, but the States take on Finland, expecting Trey Augustine there, so we'll see. I think last episode in my New Year's brain, I uh, didn't really take into account or I got the seating wrong, so thankfully we won't see the States in Sweden until... Uh, potentially the gold medal game if the states prevail over Finland. And if it's Sweden-Finland, then that's never a rivalry that disappoints. Someone will die. (laughs) It is going to be. That's one of the more underrated rivalries in international hockey. Everyone always talks about Canada-Russia or Canada-USA, but Sweden-Finland, man. That is a hockey rivalry that is outside of North America. So, you know, we don't think about it a whole lot. But to them, that is Canada-US type level of a rivalry. We'll keep you posted on how that goes, and hopefully Trey Augustine continues to impress there as well. Okay, let's jump into some more NHL news before we get into overtime here. 
And this is what we were alluding to at the very top of the show, Evan. The NHL is a, almost literally a bloody mess right now. Yes. <laughs> what do we, let, let's start with the Hartman high stick on Perfetti. So Kirill Kaprizov right now of Minnesota is on IR. He took a couple targeted, you want to call it, not targeted. I don't really want to get into the debate. Cross checks from Dylan on the Jets and to the ribs and, and Kaprizov is out. Like it hurt him. That was a, they took Kaprizov out and they, that's their star player. It's a superstar. The Wild were pissed for good reason. Yep. Then what happens? The Wild come back against the Jets and Ryan Hartman is taking a face-off opposite Perfetti, young player, up-and-coming player, up-and-coming star player for the Jets. They go down for that face-off and it's not even an accidentally on purpose. Like you watch the play, you understand what happens. Hartman just two-hand high sticks Perfetti in the mouth, like right in the face. You watch that and you're like, oh. Hartman's not a clean player. Red Wings fans know he he's the one who slew-footed Debrinket and got suspended for it. It's not a surprise that Hartman was the one to do this. And that was bad enough, but it's what happened after that's caused the uproar, which is that... He was wearing a wire. <laughs> literally, Perfetti was wearing a wire. He was mic'd up for, a, I think, like a Jets internal team show or something, and he was mic'd up, and I'm sure Hartman didn't know. And he told Perfetti that the re- he high-sticked him as retribution for the Kaprizov thing. Now, part of the agreement way back with the NHL and the Players Association is that players could be mic'd up, but you couldn't use what happened on those mics, what they picked up as part of disciplinary uh, decisions. Yep. And uh, that's the rule. And honestly, I kind of agree with that because oh, I, would, me too. I would hate to see the mics go away because it's such great content. Yeah. But they admitted or... or you know, Hartman admitted right on that mic that Perfetti was wearing that he high stick Perfetti in the face because of the Kaprizov incident, and then it's no it's no wonder it got out. The Jets were very intentional in putting that out. So the the uproar that happened afterwards was calamitous. They're oh he they're only upset because he got it it got caught on on a mic, right? Like. No one, everyone would kind of just be like, yeah, that's just how hockey has kind of always work and it's barbaristic nature of the game, you know. You hit our star player, we hit one of your star players as retribution. Like, that's kind of been the hockey code for as long as I can remember. But now that it's been, the smoking gun is on it on a mic and not admissible as evidence, it's really caused a huge uproar. And I think, you know, it's just another f- more fuel to the fire for the violent season we have seen so far in the NHL. Hartman got a fine because they could That's all you can do. The thing is, I watched that play and I was like, <sighs> I, I, that's enough for, to me, even for supplementary discipline without Mm-hmm. the audio evidence of he did it on purpose because you it's not want. evidence you can't call it evidence no but like you watch the video the video is enough to here's the thing you talked about you know it can't be a surprise and there's a Sportsnet panel actually and this is really interesting uh, I applaud Sportsnet for letting this play out because as much as you might disagree with Jamal Myers or Sam Costantino or Jennifer Botterill or whoever 
these are real opinions that exist in the hockey world, and I think it's good to kind of litigate them in a, a public setting. I thought Sportsnet did great to put this out. But there is the panel where Myers and, and Costantino agreed that, yeah, that's just how it goes. You take out Kaprizov, and it was dirty. It was, and Kaprizov's now on IR. You go and get their young star, and you have to understand that's the way that works. And that's – I think that was like a, a, an accurate representation about the way people think. But at the same time, when I see that play out, I'm like, but a high stick to the face to me is just not it. That's not what the code is. Yeah, and uh, that's where I agree with you too. Believe it or not, like I have limits to that kind of stuff as well. <laughs> I you love know. violence with limits. Yeah, you know, it's Elliot Freeman said at best, he's like, everybody likes violence to some degree. Like the NFL is the biggest sport in North America. The UFC is one of the biggest sports in the world now. Yeah. People love violence until someone gets seriously hurt. And I think that's kind of where I draw the line too. You know, thankfully Perfetti wasn't severely hurt, but for me, it's, you know, you, you exact retribu- retribution by making a big hit or, you know, pushing the line a little bit, not deliberately high sticking someone in the face. Cause to me, that is a gutless play. You want to go blow up Perfetti when he's coming around behind the net. You do that. Yeah. As long as you're ready for the consequences of your actions, I'm it's that is well within my personal limits of of what, you know, I think the code or whatever the nature of hockey is. But when you, you know, high stick someone or you know, we've seen some brutal hit from behinds over the years in hockey, you know, when it's really outside the context of hockey, that's where I really find my limit being pushed. I agree that it was gutless. Like Forget that it's a young player who's not really involved in this situation. That's one thing. But you're bent down for a face-off you're trying to win. Well, you're not. You're certainly not expecting it then. No. If you, I'm not condoning this. I'm seriously not condoning this. But here's a hypothetical. You go down on the face-off and you say to the guy, hey, you got to answer the bell here. And like Perfetti would be like, what do I have to do with this? And he's like, that's just the way it is. Not that it would make it okay, but you don't even give the guy a heads up that you're going to tag him. Like he's yeah. vulnerable. It is gutless. You're right. To me, that's that's not much different than like a, a cup check between a guy's legs or a slew foot. Like you're bent over. He could have knocked out teeth. He could have got him in the eye. Like he, yeah. And he cranked his stick up, man. Like that. He he did it to hurt him. And you're right. It sounds ridiculous, right? Like right now we're litigating what's the exact right amount of violence and retribution yeah. that's okay. <laughs> And and how innocent can a guy be or how young can the kid be? And that's what Costantino is saying, like, oh, maybe there's other players like Ehlers or, or whoever. And as barbaric as it seems, I think that's actually kind of a point to make. Like, there's star players who can go after who might be expecting these kinds of things. But no matter what, to me, the, the high stick to the face, that just wasn't it. Yeah, you know, using your stick, especially in a high sticking or – like an a ultra aggressive uh, slashing manner, that's just for me is uncalled for. I'm like I said, if you want to absolutely blow someone up in the middle of the ice when they're trying to get a pass, you know that that's the right level of violence for me. Yeah, <laughs> using your stick as a weapon is is not it for me at all. Like I can understand, you know, the cross checks where guys are out front and you're having a bit of an fu match between each other, and you're both cross checking each other. Those are two willing combatants during during play. But when it's you know before the puck's even dropped and you just high stick somebody right in the face like that is 
That is gutless, and uh, I'm sure the situation has not been diffused. <laughs> no, no, it's worse now. And the fact that it was caught on mic and everything. And the next game's going to be a bloodbath. Oh, my God. Hey, great for rivalries. But, great, great for rivalries. But you know what? Like, it, this is almost silly to say as Red Wings fans, like, because w- what's one of the most glorious moments in modern Red Wings history is fight, fight night. night at the Joe. And then round two and pretty much every other fight that happened between Detroit and Colorado thereafter. I get it. Like, we celebrate Darren McCarty bloodying Claude Lemieux. Yeah. And we continue to. I know it's barbaric. But at the same time, like, there, it, it's so ridiculous, but I genuinely stand by it. There are ways to do this that maintains the physical nature of the game. And I'm going to say it crosses the right lines, but using your stick as a weapon. Not not cool. You got to make sure that this stays in bounds. And the NHL will have a million eyes on the next time the Jets and Wild play. And I guarantee you they are going to tell the refs that they need to call absolutely everything so that this thing doesn't get out of hand because there's two really pissed off locker rooms right now and NHL players do not forget. No, no. And when it's Kaprizov and when it's, you know, the Jets are rolling right now. Like that is a good hockey team and Perfetti is an important player to this. So you have to protect your young stars. Yep. And that's that's a team that's struggled a lot with situations in the locker room that have kind of taken the team apart they are not going to take a strong season like no one was expecting them to have yeah but they're having this season and let it be pushed apart by by another team here so i expect it'll get worse that and that was a home and home it's the cool part of i i really like it never expected to like it this much but i really like these uh these little mini series between teams that's like it went away after covid but i kind of wish we could bring that back slightly baseball-esque yeah. You play a team like three days or four days in a row and you you build a little bit of uh, some bad blood during those games. I, I like it too. And it makes a lot of sense from a logistical perspective too, If at least for the teams trying to travel, right? Like they don't need to be on and off a plane every single day. They can at least call it a home base for, yeah. an ex- for them an extended period of time. And so long as they can get the arenas those for that many consecutive days, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, elsewhere. On, on to the next violent topic. <laughs> on to the ne- <laughs> Florida, Arizona. Who's at the center of this one other than Nick Cousins once again? If you pulled NHL players right now, they would probably vote him as one of the most hated players in the NHL. Him and Truba would definitely be right up there. I think I think Truba would probably garner more respect from his peers. At least he strikes the fear of God into players. Cousins does too in that he'll run you and then nothing will happen to him after. Yeah. So... What happens, the the Arizona player, Valimaki, he's on his knees to kind of defenseless against uh, the boards. Cousins comes in, doesn't let up, and hits him. Hits his head off the boards. It's a greasy hit. Cousins knows what he's doing. I know there's a lot of people who will say, oh, the game moves fast. Look, the game does move <laughs> fast. These players are more in control of their bodies than they'll let on, ever. Yes, like you don't, I'm not, I hate to be the person who says you have to have played to know you actually don't have to have played to know, but I promise you, if you've played, you'll know for sure. Yeah. He could have let up on that one. There's no need for that hit. Yeah. You see a guy in a defenseless position like that. You don't slant, like you don't hit his head into a board. You can do some serious damage. Is that, that way. the right or wrong level of violence for you? That's the wrong level okay. of violence. Okay. 
the right level of violence, and this is going to be a hot take, <laughs> Zucker, who very obviously was not having what happened there, comes in <laughs> full bore, like people have daydreamed about doing this to their most hated player. Did Branson just sent him a Rolex? <laughs> He he strides in, and I'm not actually condoning hits from behind like this because they could also mess someone up, but he he skates in and slams. like He drills Cousins from behind into the boards, and Cousins' face hits the glass like he's Carlo Koliakovo's face on that camera. Yep, yep. And Cousins drops. Whether Cousins was selling, how much oh he was hurt Oh, my God. After. It was like his soul left his body. <laughs> it was the greatest <laughs> acting job I've seen in years. Like he was Dumbledore falling off the tower. Yeah. He was, they They said he was on concussion protocol the next day, but a team can just, I don't know. Make that up. Cousins doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. No, right no, you don't. And then obviously there's a fight after with Zucker and he got the, the boarding call and the game misconduct and then was suspended for three games after that. Honestly, my th- I bet you he thinks it's worth it. He has to. And it has to be infuriating that nothing happened for Cousins, right? I think that makes... Erica Branson more pissed off. I get it. You're like, oh, you look at that individual hit and was it bad enough for a suspension? <sighs> There's absolutely zero hockey play be- occurring there. At least with the good Branson, Nick Cousins, there was a race to a loose puck and Cousins decided he was taking numbers the whole way and just drilled good Branson from behind. Yeah. Zucker, the puck was 25 feet away. It was on the other blue line and he just absolutely posterized him into the boards, left the Florida Panthers logo on the glass, I would imagine. There's no hockey play there at all. It's clearly retaliation. So, you know, a three-game penalty or three-game suspension there is not out of the realm of possibility, and I don't have any problem with that suspension. You know what? And I've got no problem with, with Zucker enacting retribution in that scenario because... I think there's a lot of NHL players, especially knowing it's Nick Cousins, who would do the exact same thing. Here's the thing. Here's where you go. Here's where you go overboard to the point where it's going to cause you problems. We we joked about Cousins selling the call and whatever. And, oh, does he actually have a concussion? He left the game. I have no, I I believe he's hurt after that. Zucker hurt him and. That wouldn't feel great. No. And here's the thing. It's going to keep happening to him. He gets, he gets zero leeway with his peers on the ice on the opposing team because they are never going to believe that any kind of gray area play was anything other than an intent to injure because he's done this multiple times now he's built a reputation and you might be thinking well there's a lot of players who do that there's more of like a a, like the sense of the brotherhood and the code and this is a violent game and often you're out to hurt each other but not in the wrong ways it sounds ridiculous but it's a real thing on the ice these guys talk on and off the ice and there's certain guys where they'll say like, Hey, I wasn't trying to hurt him. And they're like, right, but you have to go. And then they'll drop the gloves and then it's done with cousins. Like he, he gets absolutely zero benefit of the doubt now with his peers. Yeah. You know, just because these guys play on different teams doesn't mean they don't work out together in the summer. They haven't been on the same teams before, not only at the NHL level, but at international level, you know, maybe in college or their junior programs, like all these guys know each other and you know when bad plays happen they they'll send texts to each other saying hey sorry i didn't mean to do that next time you're in town let's go for dinner those sorts of things so you know people get over it and you know they resolve it in that manner whereas you know the nick cousins it <laughs> i don't think he's texting anybody after some of these so 
<laughs> it's only going to get more difficult for Nick Cousins going forward. And the NHL's got to start wrangling in some of these things because the level of aggressiveness has increased significantly where everybody's talking about it now. It's not just the hockey hardos who watch every single game or who are super in tune with the league who are who are noticing it. It's it's everywhere now. Yeah. And it, it's, again, like, I, I think you had a good point earlier on. Like, the NHL is a physical entertainment product. I know a lot of people want to focus purely on the speed and skill of the game. And if you ask me what matters more, it's that by a mile. But the physicality of the game it brings a level of excitement that, whether you like it or not, fans, especially casual fans, still really enjoy People love the physicality of football. People love the physicality of combat sports, for example. Hockey is a physical sport by nature. I don't think you're going to see them get rid of that, but they have to make sure that they stay in what is a very precarious, narrow lane. The goalposts are going to move over time. That's that's yeah. natural. But you can't have you can't have these wild swings outward where the lack of consistency and the lack of on ice and the lack of supplemental discipline leads to guys out there whacking each other with sticks or or trying to concuss each other or hit each other from behind. Not condoning what Zucker did, it is unsurprising and it will happen again if the NHL doesn't find a way to, to regulate this. The NHL needs to be very explicit in the length of suspensions, the number of suspensions. That will help. And the refs just need to call a tighter game. You know, you don't have to call every single stick that goes in on a body and call it a hook or a, or a trip or whatever. Like, you miss a couple of those, that's fine. But when it's the a huge, egregious attempts to injure or the high sticks that they miss, players are way less forgiving in that. And that's where the self-policing comes in. And that's what we're seeing right now is an increase in self-policing because the NHL is not calling things strictly or the refing is not calling things strictly and the NHL is not setting a precedence of suspension length and the number of suspensions being called. And if you start to see like it, it should be really uncommon where guys are like, all right, I'm going after your star player and you have Kaprizov going on IR and then Perfetti getting whacked in the face with a stick back to back here. That's not good. That's not good for the sport. The NHL needs their stars in the game. And that's why I think if they do a better job at this, they'll actually, you know, be a more marketable sport. Yeah. I, I have no problem with a, a, a league embracing their identity as a physical league, but let's not like you ask anyone what the 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 most prolific names in hockey are. They're gonna tell you Wayne, they're gonna tell you Mario, they're gonna tell you Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby. Like these aren't guys that <laughs> like the, the physical part of the game is important. But you can't have your stars getting leveled because of. Uh, you can have your. I don't. If they're engaging in it, great. If Connor McDavid gets laid out, I do not care at all. It's if Connor McDavid gets run from behind or gets right. high sticked and it's it's a lengthy injury. That's where I have problems. Yeah. Anyways, it's going to be. I, I don't think the uh, the Wild and the Jets are going to be the ones to settle this reasonably. So that'll be entertaining to watch at least. As And with the playoff race getting tighter and tighter in each conference, the stakes are getting higher and higher. So the teams are going to start playing each other much harder. Like, yeah. If the NHL does not get, their, get this under uh, wraps and control this, players are going to keep doing this. And it, it, you're going to see way more of this. Yeah. 
Okay, one last topic here. Uh, the Winter Classic viewership numbers came out, and it was reported that this was one of the essentially Winter Classic viewership has been declining for a long, long time. And you know, you saw previous highs of like four point five million people watching the Winter Classic, or four point four back in the days where Detroit was playing. To this one, which is the least viewed of all time, with one point one million, essentially is what it was. And I saw this, and I thought, yeah, that's not a good trend in the NHL as we've been saying for a long time, could be doing a better job marketing the Winter Classic. But it also got me wondering is, what are the reasons for this? First of all, I think the excitement of it has kind of worn off in terms of like the novelty. Because when it first happened, you're like, oh, we haven't had this in so long and it's an actual regular season game. And, you know... There's nothing else to do while you're hungover on New Year's Day. That's right. This year there was, you know, college football. In one yeah. of the most viewed games of all time or whatever that was, Go Blue. So that is going to take a big chunk out of it. Hockey's never going to be able to stand up to college football in the States. Like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Maybe not in our lifetimes. But I also think the novelty is worn off, and this is more of an in-person event. Like, this is for Seattle yeah. and Vegas fans. This is for the people there. Like, the NHL is a gate-driven league, and I think that event specifically is a lot about the people who are there. And I'm... I'm kind of fine with that. Yeah, you know, for me, if it's in the eastern half of the of North America, I guarantee you those numbers are way, way, way up. Because out west, hockey is still growing at a much more it's at a much more infant state than it is in, you know, the northeastern half of the United States, for example. So for them to still sell it out and have the arena full and having those two fan bases experiencing an outdoor game, I think that's great regardless of the viewership numbers. You also get your moments where you can, you know, really promote on socials, them tossing the fish as the players walked in and exactly. all this stuff like that. Like that's all well and good. I, I, I'm not going to say, sit here and say the, the lower viewership numbers are, are good. No, they're not. The NHL has to find a way to get more eyes on this. But at the end of the day, it's a regular season game where a lot of people are going to not be as enticed to watch it because the 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 benefits come from being there in person, more or less. So you grab your little bits for social media so you can promote thereafter. But actually, one thing I would love for them to do is bring back HBO 24-7 Road to the Winter Classic. They're, and every hockey fan would watch that, regardless of the team. I watch the ones on YouTube for every team. Yeah. I even watched the Chicago one just because I wanted to see more Connor Bedard. The behind the scenes stuff. And I know the NHL. They have the version this year. Yeah. And it's nothing is as good as the HBO version because they got full control to to create what they wanted. And I know the NHL probably didn't like it because Bruce Boudreau and Mike Babcock are dropping F-bombs every three seconds in the play. <laughs> People ever thought Bruce Boudreau was this big teddy bear? That guy <laughs> swears so much it makes our overtime episodes look tame. It yes. makes it look like church. Yeah, and the players are having FU matches on the ice and whatnot. So the NHL probably doesn't like that, but what do people expect? No, yeah. It's and like... this is the... un uncontrolled access that fans the diehard fans want and it gives people an an inside look into what how nhl teams operate i would love for hbo to come back on board with this i would love a netflix series 
they, I'm, I've said time and time again, the formula is right there. They did it with Drive to Survive. They're doing it with golf right now. I love the golf one. I watched it. What did I do? I blew up your phone after. I now know about the. I've always liked golf as a sport. I've always watched it because of Tiger Woods. He's literally the only golfer I've ever cared about. And he's not even in the show. He's not even in the show. Actually, the, the few scenes where the, he walked in, I was like, it almost gave you tingles. Oh, yeah. That man's, he is Jordan and Wayne and, you know, he's, Muhammad Ali for golf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why the NHL couldn't do this, you know. Let Netflix figure out how they want to drive a narrative and how they want to build this show. You know, if it's following one or two teams or they get un they get all the access they want and it culminates in the first round playoff series and they're getting all the behind behind the scenes looks at all this. Let them do it. They're so the NHL is scared and I get it. You have to protect your product and it's not a it's not exactly a very family-friendly behind-the-scenes experience hockey. Anyone who's kind of been in a dressing room knows that. But people know that. There's still great people in the NHL and in the world of hockey. I And they're entertaining, man. They're entertaining. Yeah. One of my favorite behind-the-scenes hockey moments of all time is HBO 24-7 Road to the Winter Classic. It's Pittsburgh. It's not the Detroit one. It's Pittsburgh. Malkin walks into the... Uh, uh, a training room or he walks into the f- team facility in the morning, the camera's behind him and he walks in and he goes, what's up? I think it was Pascal Dupuis. He's like, what's up, uh, dupes? He goes, F- you Gino for no yeah, reason. Yeah. No and, reason. And it's the funniest thing in the world. And yeah. it's like the, the NHL is scared, but I, and I get that, but look at the NBA, look at the NFL. Like these are personalities that aren't exactly putting themselves out there in the most positive way, no. but people still love it. Yeah. You need to take a couple risks here yeah. and, if people are off put by the amount of profanity that professional athletes have, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. You you can't you can't shelter people from this. Like it's it's excessive for sure. And I've been in those locker rooms. <laughs> it's outrageous at times. But I would love to see the NHL take this risk and let they need to do it through an avenue like Netflix, like Amazon Prime, like the big, big streaming services. To get the most possible eyes on it. Because I think the NH, the hockey is a fantastic sport and it's so unique compared to every other sport in the world. And they also like people punch the lights out of each other. I, the, there are personalities in this game that would make a Netflix series so successful. The yeah. NHL just needs to let a streaming service or HBO have some creative freedom to do such a thing. Well, we'll see what they do. Uh, I think more and more people are going to see what's happening with uh, Formula One and golf and and tennis and what they've done with Netflix and the similar things will spread to other sports. And the PGA Tour let Netflix do this in maybe the most controversial, most pivotal moment in their organization's history as they divide between PGA Tour and live. And I think it was smart because now you have guys who had a – Joel Damon had a terrible year. Yeah. He is on my favorites list on my PGA Tour app. I always want to see how he's doing because I think he's a great personality after watching him on that show. Yeah. And this happened in Formula One too. They, they People didn't always give access. Uh, they didn't let themselves be filmed. They just weren't, they didn't think it was that big of a deal. They thought it'd be more trouble than it was worth. And then they saw Formula One is also a very obviously individually driven sport. 
they saw what happened to those people's careers after they were, they got access and then, you know, they wanted the same afterwards and more and more players or more and more drivers were into it after. So yeah, man, I, I, players would be totally on board with it. Think of the social media boom that they would experience. Like this is all dollars in, in their pocket at the end of the day. I think players would be completely on board with this. I think there's times where, you know, talking heads like us sit here removed from the actual goings on of the league. And we're like, Oh, they should be doing this better that better that better. But we don't provide actual solutions and we don't know what it's like. And I, I can see that sure. this is one where I, I would bet my life on the fact that the NHL can't see the forest for the trees. Just let go do it. I, I promise you it'll be good. Everyone wants it. Everybody wants it. All right, let's jump into overtime here on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Overtime, again, is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to support the show, the tickets to the home game uh, draws, the Discord, the bonus overtime episodes, and lots more are your benefits. You allow us to continue to grow the show, produce content like Expected by Whom, hosted by Prashant Thayer and Sean Shapiro, support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, and run partnered Winged Wheel Podcast Nights with the Detroit Red Wings and Grand Rapids Griffin. So again, patreon.com slash podcast. All right, some questions from our patrons here. Uh, Patrick J says, curious to hear your opinions. If you were Derek Lalone, how would your forwards be grouped up? Perron only has seven even strength points all year, and I don't understand how he still gets put on the second line. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because I don't think the Red Wings have enough performing players to just fix the forward lines and fix all their issues. You know, having Larkin Raymond and Perron, for example, leaving Confer with Kane Debrinkit, I don't mind that at all. But, you know, I understand the, the thought of, oh, Perron doesn't have a lot of even strength points. But you look at the attributes of his play when he's playing well, and I do think that's been off and on this year. I think he's lost a step. I don't think he's shown a lot of the attributes that made him so dominant for Detroit last year, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But they're still there from time to time, and obviously he came up big against San Jose. I don't mind him up there. He protects the puck really well. He reads the offensive zone really well, and that's the reason he fits in there. I personally like the idea of Joe Valeno trying him out further up. I think he's done well uh, in limited spurts there before. Daniel Sprong, a lot of people ask, why doesn't he get more minutes? You know, he's on a 20-goal pace or 21-goal pace with 13-ish minutes a night. Why doesn't he get more? You watch his game and you understand what coaches don't love about it. Like, he's not really someone you're going to put out there to be defensively responsible. He's not going to play on the PK, et cetera, et cetera. I still think he has more room to go, though. Like, I I think you can can definitely get more ice time out of him. Agreed. Does it come at risk of uh, your neutral and defensive zone? Yeah. Can it get worse than what it currently looks like? That's as, that's exactly what I'm thinking too. I don't know. I would like to see things shaken up there too. But is there major surgery needed to the forward group in terms of configuration? I don't know that configuration is necessarily the answer. Yeah, I would agree. You know, maybe you could try Fabry higher up the lineup as well to see if a look in, on one of those lines could, could help things out. I don't totally like breaking up Kane and Debrinkit based on the chemistry that they've had in the past. And that's a major factor when you come up with uh, your line composition. That's really the only other things I can think of. Like the Red Wings don't have extreme depth. Uh, Next question here. Let's go to Cody Stark says, what do you guys think Rasmussen was so upset about after he scored his empty netter? He had a rough game. Maybe he's frustrated about that. And that's the only way he can score. Poor Moose. I know it's going to sound silly, but players genuinely don't like empty netters especially when they are having a hard time finding the net it doesn't feel like you broke a curse or got the monkey off your back or anything so i wouldn't be surprised if that's actually it 
Yeah, he uh, sure loves his empty netters. He has to work for a lot of work pretty hard for a lot of those too. And he does like a lot of the time. It's he makes a he blocks a shot or grinds along the board or breaks through a clogged up neutral zone. Like credit to him that sealed the game. Could have been yeah. a different result. Yeah, I don't really know why he was upset. I saw the the slashing of the boards after as well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it could could have tweaked something. Who knows? Rasmussen's he's struggled all year though, right? Like yeah. he was supposed to. He was on a lot of people's lists to come in and have a another big step because that's what he taken for the past couple of years before that and it's not just not happened this year he's taken a step backwards he's looking for a contract he's looking for you know basically cementing himself in Detroit's middle six kind of thing and that's just not what it's been this year so that's probably a frustrated guy in general for sure uh Stu Pedasso says the common catchphrase is that the NHL is not a development league Players need to develop their game in the AHL before getting called up to the show. So at what point did the paradigm shift for Edvinson uh, to where we're now saying he needs to get more NHL games under his belt in order to develop as a player? Kind of seems like we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth on that. And for the record, I say we and our because I 100% agree that he needs to be on the team like three weeks ago. But I also see the hypocritical nature of the sentiment. It's, it's a very good point. And you're not wrong that we are often hypocritical on the show. But I will say, I, I do think we, including you, Stu, uh, are correct on this one because, you know, Simon Edvinson right now, I think, is doing enough in Grand Rapids where the the limitations in someone's game that would prevent them from succeeding in the NHL to the point where you say it's not a development league, I don't think those are present in his. I think he has a mature enough game and the things that you still want him to work on, the warts, so to speak, are stuff that he's going to be doing for his first, you know, 150 games, no matter what. Yeah. Defensemen are funny because they need time to kind of develop the sense of what it's like to defend in the NHL. It's not the same as the AHL. The game is faster. Players can do more with less space. Your mistakes are punished more. It's, it's harder to contribute offensively. It's kind of an endless barrage, but at the same time, I, I only think the AHL can offer so much development stimulus, so to speak. And so, if Simon Edvinson is a player who can contribute now offensively, develop his defensive game, and unfortunately he still hasn't figured out the the turnover thing from time to time, it's still a net benefit to have him in and, and have him figure that out now. Now, if Detroit had six to seven defensemen who are all rock solid defensively. It's like, sorry, bud, you got to pass one of them. Definitely. And then we're having a different conversation. It's a, it's a two-pronged thing. One is Edvinson and the other is, you know, Petrie or, or Hall or Mata or whoever. And right now the Red Wings have a really poor bottom end of their defense. So I'm like, why can't you just have him in? Yeah, different teams have completely different philosophies on this. And my personal opinion is the NHL is not a development league. Pe- players can learn a lot by being in that NHL. I One of the biggest ones that people have talked about in recent memory is when Cole Caulfield got Martin St. Louis as a head coach. And St. Louis showed him how to find a little bit more open space on the power play. And in that next game, he does that exact move and scores. Like, that is a teachable moment. But that is a very niche example for me. I I think you come into the NHL, this is the job we're trying to do. And if you have to develop and improve yourself, that's your expectations. It's 
It's not, oh, we're just going to let everybody in and we're going to teach everybody to be NHL players. It's a very much a road you have to figure out yourself. And the, the minor leagues is where you prepare for those types of situations. Andy says, I have a bunch to say about the wings, but I'll try to keep it short. Welcome to the club, Andy. Uh, the biggest problem on this team is goaltending. Bad goaltending magnifies every mistake. Last episode, Brad mentioned that Huso and Ned were good before they got to Detroit, but got worse here. The problem is the sample sizes in St. Louis and Carolina were a single season for both players, so there hasn't been any sustained track record. The second biggest issue is perception. We don't even know what we have in some of the prospects in Grand Rapids, so it's premature to say that we don't have the players to compete with. The real hope is if this season doesn't materialize like Eiserman hopes, we'll play the kids more next year since the veteran plan didn't work out. I'll say, just to further Andy's second point there, that even if Eiserman and Lalone want to move to the veteran approach because they thought they could win a little bit more now, that's a decision for sure. I don't think they had to go that heavy this year. Like sure. Even over the past couple seasons, I think you could have had one, at least one fewer of, you know, Hall, Sherratt, Mata, uh, Petrie. Even just between Hall and Petrie this past offseason, right? So... Yeah, you didn't need both of those for sure. And I know the Red Wings weren't planning on having both of them, but they were really loved Petrie. And to that I say, well, that didn't really work out. And now this is what you get by kind of filling your cup too much. And at forward, I understand that they're not in love with Beargren, but I still think Beargren contributes. I don't know. I, I, I think they could have got more run out of their young kids this year. I'm, I'm more focused on defense than offense, though. Yeah, me too. I think the defense is a much bigger concern. It's... Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm sure, you know, when you think about filling out your decor with veteran experience, you expect a high floor. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the floor was in the basement, so that was not uh, quite what people expected. But yeah, I agree. I would much prefer to see some of the younger guys get a little bit more leeway, and the Red Wings are reaping what they sow with the decisions that have been made in terms of personnel. Yeah. All right, just a couple more quick ones here. First, uh, from Red Feather Desert Dog says, if this rebuild fails, it will be primarily attributed to Eisman's lack of success in the draft. Sure, his first round hasn't been awful, Kosa and Casper notwithstanding, but we've had guys like William Linder being taken over Brock Faber, Shai Buyam over Matthew Nyes, Ethan Phillips over Matthias Maselli. The Red Wings have had a ton of picks in rounds two to four, and aside from Trey Augustine, I'm ready to say that this area of the Eisner plan is teetering on disaster. So, Two things on this. First is I've learned over time that past the first round is incredibly difficult to pin down a single player that you want your team to draft because draft, once you get an inside look into how draft teams build their list, it is so... They don't go on Sportsnet or Bob McKenzie's rankings and be like, oh, wow, we should take a look at these players. It's every team is completely different. And oftentimes they don't even consider guys for one reason or another. Like there's just, they could honestly, they can be like, that guy's got a milk, milk bag body. We don't want him. Yeah. And, and that could, happens. He could be a first line center. And they're like, Nope, not interested. Yeah. I don't like his physical attributes and that's it. It's and, done. And that's they're, how a guy gets passed up by 31 teams twice. For example, Andrew Cristal skates weird. Done. Yeah. <laughs> he falls off everybody's boards, but I don't think they're wrong in this comment. I, I I know it's a high bar to set for a team. Like you're never going to get every second round pick right, but they have gone the type of player that they've picked in the face of higher upside players. That's been a, a concerted choice a few times. And not that all of Detroit's second round picks are going to turn out poorly, but there have been enough where I'm like, that guy was on the board and it was, 
I hate to use consensus because public lists are are so much different and they're not gospel. You should never treat them as gospel. But you're like, there's a very talented player that you could have had there at a great price. They don't take him once. That's one thing. They don't take him twice. That's another thing. But eventually you're going to have to take stock of what Detroit's second round picks have garnered for them. And it's not exactly tracking well right now. He, and you need to work on your weaknesses. I, I it, Teams would say, oh, well, we haven't had extended periods of time for them to develop, so the, the jury's still out on them. But there's guys getting picked in the second and onward rounds that are making impacts at the NHL, or there's been consensus first-round picks who've fallen outside. Red Wings have passed on them, and now the player is making an impact either at the AHL level or in the NHL at this point. So... It is an area of concern for sure, and I think everyone who's a fan is scratches their head at some of the picks, but teams operate in a way different fashion than, than we as fans tend to believe that they do. Yeah. All right. Last comment here from Jack Stad says, hey, fellas, happy new year. I just want to give a shout out to my hockey buddy, Pink Josh, who's a listener. He's currently fighting for his life right now, undergoing treatment for a pretty aggressive form of leukemia. His wife and kids could use a heavy dose of positive vibes. So I'm asking all the listeners out there to send those vibes out into the universe. Hug your loved ones and for cancer. Love you, Josh. Josh, we're all with you, buddy. You know what? You have the entire Winged Wheel podcast and Red Wings community standing with you. So all the best to you. And thank you to Jackstad for for putting that comment out there. Okay. We are going to wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast. Thank you all so very much for listening. We're going to be back with you on Sunday. It'll be after the LA game, but before the Anaheim game. So stay tuned for that one. I'd like to thank all of our listeners, new and old. I appreciate you tuning in. There's usually one more of us meatheads on this. uh, So you'll hear him on the next episode. I'd like to thank Labatt Blue Light for sponsoring this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, as well as all of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Winged Wheel Podcast if you want to support the show. Also, get your tickets to Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA, Saturday, March 2nd against Florida. Link in the description, if not right away, sometime soon. We'd like to thank all of our name-level supporters on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Croner's Left Knee, Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Brad Shin Extension Baggins, Carl Brutinaninaluski, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scovey, Craig Kibble, Daddy Bettman Bucks, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Eric Shun, G.O.D. Creatives, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kaylin Wood, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K. Cannon Fodder, The Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Oof, Ow, Ouch, My Playoff Hopes, R.A., Red Feather, Desert Dogs, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Scree and Lube, that's what I appreciate about you. Woman's Elite Dancing D, Iser Plan Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, AB, Adam Rose, Axel Sandy Pelica, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, Chuck Buffchest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor, Connor Leighton, Corey Prida, Darren Fick, D Boss Snip Show, Derek James, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, Hot Ham Water, James Laporte, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, Jam Rhapsody, John Evans, Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Les Grossman's Ungodly Firestorm, Linda Hull, Maximilian, 
Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, Ophelia, Steven, The Hodag, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, Winging It in San Diego, ex formerly AA Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so very much. We'll talk to you Sunday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.